As for me, I'm already being poured out as a libation, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Our best scholars believe that this second letter to Timothy is written a good 30 years after the death of Paul by someone who loved him, who knew him, and who wanted to say to a church in the 90s of that first century what they believed Paul would have said had he still been living, had Caesar Nero not put to death Paul and Peter in the mid-60s. The circumstances, the working vocabulary in Greek are not those of, of Paul. The things going on in the church are of a generation later than Paul. And yet this unknown author is willing to offer up a best effort to help another generation understand what that first great missionary would have said to them in their time and place had he still been living. He begins by saying to them, uh, my life is at an end. Eugene Peterson translates this first portion, my time has come, you'll have to take over. He uses the expression, I'm being poured out. This is an expression used in houses of worship, not only Jewish houses of worship of that time, but pagan houses of worship as well. People were encouraged to bring the first fruits of their efforts to their temple of worship. First squeezing of olive oil, the first bottle of wine, the first bushel of wheat, the finest little animal without blemish, without spot, and the oil, the wine, uh, a little of the wheat, the blood of the animal were poured out as a thanksgiving offering. That's the word used here. Time of departure, this expression is used in several different ways in classical Greek. One of those is when a family leader or tribal leader said to the group, uh, there isn't sufficient water here for us any longer. There isn't sufficient fodder for our animals. We need to move on. At sunrise in the morning, everyone will strike his or her tent to roll it up and let's move on. It's also used, though, in the port cities in classical Greek to describe um, unwrapping the long ropes that held a ship to its moor and tossing that rope out onto the ship so that it can sail away. Time of departure has come. What would Paul say if he had had that opportunity in this generation, what would he have said? Number one, I fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. The sermon title is, We Supply the Adjective, He Supplies the Adverb. We decide whether we fight the good fight or the bad fight. Adjectives. God decides whether we have fought well or not. Adverb. Whether we have fought well or not, God will decide. But you and I have chosen to fight the good fight. 
This year we decided to change the slogan of our church to Downtown for Good. And we meant by that we're not looking to move to the suburbs at any time. We've been in the heart of this city 116 years. We intend to be in the heart of this city the next 116 years and beyond, God willing. We intend to be downtown, but we want everyone who thinks about or hears about Boston Avenue Church to think of something good, not something bad. Something good happens in this city because of Boston Avenue United Methodist Church. Yesterday, more than 200 people gathered here early yesterday morning and fanned out in work groups across the downtown of our city. Uh, Lynn Bartlett was foreman on the group to which Gail and I were assigned. We were on Boston Avenue, North Boston Avenue. When we got there, the city had brought a big dumpster, one of those huge ones, put it right in the edge of the street there. It was completely empty, and we started cleaning up that property. Uh, we got that dumpster completely filled. There was a representative from the city who had come by, and she called a fellow with a big truck, and he had a hydro hydraulic arm that compacted it down about halfway, pushed it all down about halfway. We filled it to the top again. Uh, she called, and this fellow came and took that big dumpster away and put a brand new one down there for us to start working on that. A lot of people worked really hard. We had others in our work crew, Lynn Bartlett, Kevin Anderson, uh, a young man whose grandparents, the Robins, are very active here. Calvin was up on that ladder, and they were replacing uh, some of the, the, the work underneath the eaves of the house where rats could get in and vermin, vermin of different kinds, and they were repairing all of that. It's looking really, really nice. Well, the other work teams had other things they were doing, other properties they were working on, but more than 200 of us gave that Saturday doing good things in our city. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you remember, was thrown into Soviet Union prison camp because he was one of the intellectuals who was opposing Joseph Stalin. This was back right after World War II in the late 1940s and 50s. Solzhenitsyn was in one of those gulags for eight years. Uh, he was diagnosed with cancer. He didn't think he had very long to live, and eventually he was released. Uh, he was working frantically to write down his experiences, make some sense of what had happened to him. Uh, he had been imprisoned with the intelligentsia who opposed Joseph Stalin. And these uh, intelligent folk, many of them educators, uh, had been given the task of helping identify voices on tapped phone lines. Uh, Joseph Stalin wanted to know who was talking to whom and what were they saying. Uh, they didn't have nearly the technologies in the late 1940s that we have 60 years later. They were trying to identify voices. Who's talking to whom on these telephone lines and who's uh, meaning harm to Joseph Stalin and his regime? Alexander Solzhenitsyn's perhaps greatest book that came out of that was called In the First Circle. In the First Circle... He had a character named Volodin, and Volodin is one of those who's being made to try to identify voices on the phone, and in listening to one privileged conversation on a tapped phone, he hears that a Soviet spy is going to meet a turncoat American in New York City who's going to turn over to him secrets for a more effective way to make atomic bombs. This was shortly after the end of World War II.
and he wants to call the American embassy in Moscow and tell them what's about to happen, but he's almost sure his voice will be recognized the way he's learned to recognize others. To call or not to call. And his decision is, if I do not side with the good, if I do not do the right thing and call the American embassy and tell them what's happening, I may not have a conscience the next time. If I do, it will be a diminished conscience. When one knows what is right, when one knows what is good, one must act on that so that consciences are healthy and continue to work, making a side on the good rather than on the bad. Number two, I've run the good race. This is an athletic term, of course. Uh, the marathons were already being run in the time this letter was written. Uh, people who ran long distances, marathon distances, and ended up in the great arenas of Greece. People cheering them as they finish the race, sometimes staggering across the finish line. I have run the good race. Linda Neumark is a Lutheran pastor in New York City, in Manhattan. Uh, Linda has written that only recently did she discover that her grandparents on her father's side were Jews in Germany. She didn't know that. Her father and mother were Christian, Lutheran Christians. She grew up in that faith, felt God's call to be a pastor, and now pastors a prestigious church in Manhattan, New York City. She did not know her grandparents were Jews. Uh, now she has discovered that her grandparents, in fact, had built a successful business in Lübeck in Germany. Uh, they realized too late uh, what Hitler was doing. There was no way they could get out of the country. Uh, they could tell now it was only a matter of time until they were going to be confined. They were, in fact, sent to one of the camps, did die there. They had one child, a little boy. And they took him to the Lutheran church in Lübeck to have him baptized to try to save his life. And in fact, it did. It did save his life. The mother and father were thrown into the camp. They were killed. But that child was taken by a Lutheran family and raised as a Christian. There were years before they felt anything could be said about his parents. He was too little to know what was going on. They were his parents at that point, and he grew up Lutheran Christian. Came to America. His daughter is a Lutheran pastor. She said on a recent trip, she wanted to go to Lübeck and see the church where her father was baptized as a baby to see that baptistry. She had been doing some research about it. It's made of bronze, she said. It's large enough a person could get into it, but in fact the Lutherans, as the Catholics who owned it before them, uh, used the dipping of the hand and putting head, water onto the head of the believer. But it's beautiful, big, and bronze, she said, and 672 years old. 672 years old. She said, I, 
I got down where I could see this beautiful bronze work that an artist had done all those years ago, um, trying to see all these figures. And I could tell down around the bottom, Adam, Eve, talking snake, a devil, she said, a portly little devil, looked like he had had far too much bratwurst, sauerkraut, and beer, but no question about who he was. And then you had Cain and Abel and so on. Now you get on up to Jesus and his baptism and his temptation. That same, same little devil still around tempting Jesus out in the desert. She said, then there were a string of young women. Uh, I wasn't sure what they represented. And I turned to the pastor, she said, and asked him in German, uh, who are these women? And he said, uh, I don't know how to say this in English. The smart and stupid girls, he said. And she said, oh, the wise and foolish virgins. These are the wise and foolish virgins. Okay, the ones who were ready to go into the wedding and those who were not ready to go into the wedding. Yes, yes, he said, that's, that's the ones. Finally, she got to the crucifixion of Jesus and his burial in a tomb with the stone rolled over. All of this in beautiful bronze. And then she said, his ascension into heaven. And what she found most interesting was that as Jesus was ascending into heaven, there were footprints left on the mountain from which he ascended. Footprints of God. Footprints. He was here among us. He who knew no sin took upon himself the sins of the rest of us. Linda said, I felt my grandparents offering up this child of theirs. I felt the German family that took him in and loved him, nourished him, looked after him, and eventually told him the story of his parents. A faith of my father and mother that became my faith in time. And as I stood beside this font, 672 years, people have been baptized here. Just outside, many of them buried here, having run the good race. The good race. Okay. Number three, this writer adds, very important. I have kept the faith. Dr. Jewett Bassler says, this article here is very important. Just, I have kept faith? No, I have kept the faith, which means I have kept that which was taught to me and passed that on to someone else. I've watched Jay Leno for years. I've always liked Jay. I got to meet him many years ago when he was uh, doing a show with Bob Hope at a big Texaco home down in Texas when they were on the Texaco uh, show on television. Uh, I don't know him. You know, I saw him one time, got to shake his hand, and he did a routine with Bob Hope uh, that night. But I've enjoyed him through the years, and one of the things I've enjoyed are his jaywalks in Los Angeles. I'm still amazed where he finds all of these people. Uh, he says they are not pre-screened. They are not interviewed ahead of time. He just walks up with a microphone to people on the street and asks them questions. 
you saw one of those in his uh, commercials, getting ready for his new time slot, where he said to a young woman, college age, how many stars on that flag? And she said, it's moving too much for me to count them. An American flag, of course. Sometimes he asked people, how many senators, how many United States senators? 112? 232? What do you do? I'm a college professor. What do you do? I'm a senior in college. What do you do? I'm an educator, whatever. It's amazing. Sometimes he asked biblical questions. One night he was asking biblical questions. Genesis 1, he said, says, in the beginning, God. There was darkness, there was chaos, and God said, let there be peace, the person said. No light. There was darkness, and God said, let there be light. So then he said, who are Cain and Abel? And the person said, friends of Jesus? Right. Now, Gallup and others have taken polls across the country, not from non-Christians, but people who identify themselves as Christians. And 20% of the people interviewed when asked, who was Noah's wife, said Joan of Arc. And 10% of the Christians thought Moses was one of Jesus' disciples. And they could name more members of the Brady Bunch than they could name Ten Commandments. Now, all of this would be funny if it were not sad. So sad. How can we come to the end of our lives and say, I have kept the faith if I don't know the faith. The faith. Dr. Wallace Riley is an Episcopal minister, priest in Richmond, Virginia, and he says, we have to trust the stories. We have to trust the God of the stories. But how can we get across the stories? How can we help people know and remember the stories? Number four. I believe I will be saved, this author says. I believe Jesus Christ will save me a place in the heavenly realm. I know two or three times this year I've mentioned uh, John Updike, but every time I read another article about John Updike, it makes me think of him again. Uh, Dr. John Buchanan has written again just this, this most recent issue in the Christian Century about John Updike and uh, how he misses his writing. Um, John Updike made the most of his money writing novels about a fellow named Rabbit. Uh, taking Rabbit through several decades of his life. Um, I was not a big fan of those particular books. Uh, John Updike was given the Peggy Helmrich Author of the Year Award one year. Gail and I go to that dinner every year, and sometimes I've been asked to pray uh, before the meal. Uh, I never pray in public arenas like that without writing out my prayer. I give it a lot of thought. Uh, do the best I can to try to voice what what I think God might like to hear from that group on a given occasion. 
And that night, uh, as in many times, most people say nothing about a prayer, you know. I guess they don't want to rate them good, bad, indifferent, or whatever, so they just say nothing. You pray, and everybody eats, and they have the program, and everybody goes home. But that night, John Updike walked over to me and said, I really appreciated your prayer. I grew up Methodist. And I said, what are you now? And he said, I married an Episcopalian. And she was a really devout Episcopalian, and so I went to church with her. I do remember, he said, that John and Charles Wesley never left the Anglican church, and I said, that's right, that's right. And he said, so I've been an Episcopalian all my adult life, but I've never forgotten my wonderful upbringing in the Methodist church. I was taken to Sunday school and worship, he said, in a Methodist church all my growing up years. If you really want to get to the religious thought of John Updike, you need to read his poetry. In his poetry, he alludes to Sunday school. He alludes to the Jewish faith that enlightened a part of the world at least to knowledge about the one true God. Through his writing, he worries about aging and dying. Uh, he wrote one poem on the day before he turned 50. Uh, he had taken his children skiing there in New England where they lived. And uh, he wrote a poem later that evening about tomorrow I will be 50. When I first started taking my children skiing, they were little and I was young. And now they are grown and I'm old. Once I skied very fast without fear and now I ski slower and am afraid. He takes rabbit through decade after decade, getting older, his life slipping away. Fourteen months before last January when he died, he was diagnosed with cancer. And he wrote a poem that said, Death has found a portal into my body. He knew the time was probably not very long. He wrote poems about his priest who came to see him and how much that visit meant to him. About friends who were holding him in their thoughts and in their prayers. And one day, when he was reflecting on the 23rd Psalm, he wrote this. Surely, what a magnificent word, he said. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. My life. My life. Forever. Amen.